From Omaha, Nebraska, the capital city of the historic haunted heartland, my name is Brian Corey, and I invite you to listen to my show, The Necronomicast. Every episode, it is my pleasure to bring you the finest in creepy conversations with filmmakers, actors, television personalities and authors, musicians, scientists, and highly sought-after experts where we explore the mysteries of the paranormal, true crime, and all subjects that inspire what we see in the darkened theater. So sit back, relax, dim the lights as we journey together to a place where monsters dwell, where spirits walk among the living, and darkness shapes our imaginations. Available everywhere you go for podcast entertainment, join me for every episode of Necronomicast, where I bring you the horror of Hollywood and beyond. Quite unusual. Hello, and welcome to the Quite Unusual podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Noelle. I'm Nicole. And we're hosting this one. This, just this one. Yep. That's the only one. Well, usually it's it's Nicole and Noelle that hosts, but this time it's Noelle and Nicole. It's so. Oh, how the tables have turned. Tables are tabling. That's for sure. This week we've got uh, an interesting topic, one that uh, came to our attention because we took a little trip down to Louisville, Louisville, which I feel like we've been talking a lot about lately. I mean, we did go to there. <laughs> we went there. But so this one was actually brought to our attention when we were investigating Waverly Hills with Strange Escapes. And on the night we weren't investigating, they arranged for us to take a walking tour of old Louisville. Which was so fucking beautiful. So oh my God. It was a spooky walking tour too. So if anyone is visiting Louisville, I hope we're saying that right because I've been told multiple times by people that it's not right. You know what? Um, whatever. I don't even care anymore. But then I don't. Yeah. Louisville. 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 Anyways, highly recommend taking one of those uh, tours of their historic district with, like, all of the old homes. And they're basically untouchable because you have to get, like, approval to change or update anything, which huge fan of, oh, personally. Yeah. Oh, oh my God, absolutely. So I don't know how many people are that are listening are like Nicole and I here, but we go on Zillow and Redfin for mm. fun. Like, just, like, is for fun. You know, like, it's that's fun. social media for us. Honestly, um, I'm I, on there more than I'm on like Instagram. I will say, yeah, but they also have like Zillow Gone Wild and stuff like and on. old cheap homes, old yeah. Nordic homes, old cheap Nordic homes. That's a good one. I felt basically all of the accounts I follow on Instagram yeah. have to do with like house listings. Yeah, we're like HGTV girlies, like mm-hmm. in our hearts, heart. So when we were doing this tour, which was amazing, by the way, um, I'll look up the company and shout it out. We also have a video. Of this tour on our Patreon. So if you want to kind of go on like the walking tour with us, mm. this is on there. So you guys can take a peek at what we were peeking at. But anyways, we were when we were walking around, um, there were a couple of them for sale and we were looking them up. Oh, yeah. On like Zillow and being like, how is this so cheap? Like, this is so ridiculous. It's so like inexpensive. $350,000 for like a five bedroom, three bath McMansion. Like a full ass mansion like from a, like the 1800s. It's like crown molding and like everything was original, like hardwood yeah. and just You know what beautiful. that buys here? 
A two bedroom, one bath. Double wide trailer. Yes, <laughs> correct. It's fucking insane. It's, it's so terrible. It's insane. Like I want to move to Louisville. Also, Louisville yeah. is so nice. I loved Louisville. I, would I go was back. very really liked the town. I thought it was really nice. Really cute, too. It was very, very fun. So when Nicole told me she was doing this one, I was very excited. Because mm. this is a really, really fun story. It is super fun. And actually, uh, back to Louisville and their beautiful houses, there is a neighborhood called Millionaire's Row. And the homes are just, like, breathtaking. Oh, my God. It's unbelievable. like all olds. Definitely worth a stroll if you don't want to pay for a tour and you're just, like, I don't know, visiting Louisville, check out Millionaire's Row just to take a walk and look at all the houses. There's a place called Belgravia Court and then St. James Court, which are just like giant Victorian mansions full of history. Um, and which up until recently, I think it was St. James Court, they had gas street lamps, right? I think they have them again now. That's um no, remember they said the one guy retired, they had a statue. They had like a person that would actually go. Every single night and light the gas lamps. I thought she said that they were on all the time now. That they were just on all the time? Yeah, I'll look it up. But there definitely was a statue. And she definitely mm. did say what you're saying. That that there was like a guy that would come and like do it. Every right? night. Yeah, he was yeah. like the lamp lighter. Which is just so, so old school. Like it honestly took you back like in time. A- absolutely. They had like a promenade with like a fountain and like this. <sighs> Like, oh, it was unbelievable. If I could choose one place, like, to live, it would be uh, St. James Court. Absolutely. 100%. Preferably in a big pink mansion. But, oh, my you know, God. They did have a big choosers. pink mansion. It was so cool. And that one castle that they had, I think it was, like, oh yeah, Connor's Castle. I don't think it was that. Something like that. It was, But it was, like, a legitimate castle. Also supposed to be haunted. So they are so gaslights. They just no longer have to have someone come light them. Oh, they're electric now? No, no, no. They are gas still. Um, They just don't have someone that, like, comes around and, like, lights the lamps. They just, like, flip a switch and they go on because it's 2023 and they can oh. just turn gas on and off now. Oh. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> well, I dedicate this episode to the lamplighter of St. James Court. Oh, that's nice. Okay. And I dedicate this to fire. Without it, we would not light the lamps. Fire. <laughs> so that brings us to the story I'm going to tell today. On our tour, we stopped at a house, a beautiful, huge Victorian mansion, which is now converted into student housing apartments. But before that, it was labeled as Louisville's own murder house. Murder. We need like a spooky noise on this. I know. Gotta get more spooky. I'm just gonna make... We- we gonna, literally every single episode say, we need to get this. We need to get that. I We're going to add this. And I then know. we never do. And we literally never, ever do. So I'm just going to pick one at random and I'm going to say that we should do... Bill, what? Strange things are afoot at the... St. James Court. <laughs> yeah, good. That's a... That was good, right? We're kind of overusing that one, but we'll leave Strange, it strange we'll things are afoot at St. James Court. And what was so weird about this case was that, as it was going on, it had eerie resemblances to a popular TV show that was airing around the same time that the murder was being investigated. So there's no way that the TV show could have taken anything from this murder because it was already it already happened. Like they were, it was airing at the same time. House MD, which was a little freaky. House M. No, yeah, is that what it was? Yes, it was Grey's, House Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> 
No. So the house in Louisville had very similar stories to the murder house from the first season of American Horror Story, which is the best season it's the best of season. American Horror Story. It's the absolute best season. They both involved sanatoriums, a gay couple, a black suit, and a creepy doctor. Oh, yeah. The gimp. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. And you might be asking yourself, well, why then haven't you heard of this crazy case? I was asking myself that. I know. Why haven't I heard of this crazy case? Well, that's because the case was overshadowed by another murder case that rocked the nation. This was all happening while the Jody Arias case was going on, and the media clung to her case, and everyone just sort of forgot about this one? I mean, I guess it's not very often that you get a woman killer, so maybe that's why, but... Yeah, her story was crazy. Cray. Yeah, it was like butthole pictures and everything. But was there butthole pictures? Yeah, dude. I don't remember that. Yeah. It was a a wild ride. So her butthole's on the internet, just like Jennifer Lawrence's butthole's on the internet? You know what, Nicole? There are billions of buttholes on the internet. Billions of buttholes. I mean, I have to say that I think this case is just as interesting, but I get why Jody took precedent over it. I actually think this one's more interesting. I think so, too. I don't know if it's because I've heard the Jody Arias one, like, Like, so many times or something. I feel like it's I think this one is, I don't know. I also really like um, like reality shows, though, and this one has mm. that like drama that I crave. There is a lot of drama in this one. You know one. what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Well, well uh, should we shall we just get right into it? We shall. Shall we? Shall we? We shall. Let us let us do it. Okay, so actually, before we get into like the murder part of it, the man who was in charge, the boss, I guess you can say, of the Louisville tours that we took, David Domine wrote a book about this case, and they even called it out on the tour, and it's called A Dark Room in Mirrorball City. And I listened to the audiobook because, I mean, who has time to read nowadays, you know? So I listened to the audiobook, and I would recommend it to anyone who wants to learn more about the case because obviously a 13-hour audiobook will provide more details than my hour-and-a-half podcast. So Yeah, but... If you like what you hear here, then I suggest you listen or read the book. Definitely. And to shout out that tour company, can I do that real quick? Yeah, do it. It's called Ghost City Tours. They actually have tours in like a bunch of different places, I think. Isn't it like a nationwide thing? Oh, I I wasn't sure about that. I just know that uh, David Domine, he lives in Louisville. So I don't know if, and I think he's a part of like the like commission to keep like all of the historic houses and stuff. Yeah. He knows a lot about the city. Let's just put it that way. And he wrote a book about the case and it's actually pretty good. So check it out. And also fun fact about Louisville. It is called Mirrorball City because it was once the city that manufactured most of the country's disco balls or glitter balls, as some also call them. And we actually got a little disco ball as like a gift from our tour, too. It's so cute. I have it hanging up on my rearview mirror, and it blinds me sometimes, but it's worth it. As you're driving? Yeah. <laughs> nice. Mine's in my room because I thought about doing that, and I was like, uh, probably it not a great idea. Probably not a great idea. Yeah, it will blind you. So anyways, our story takes place in the old Louisville neighborhood, the one we just talked about with all of the beautiful houses. And in the book, the author refers to old Louisville as the redheaded stepchild of the city. 
Back in the day, the neighborhood was full of grandeur, or I guess rich people. It was the city's first suburb, but as the years went on, it started to be known as the bad side of town. In the 70s, local residents campaigned to establish a historic preservation district in the neighborhood just south of downtown. And after that, the neighborhood started to take on a positive change. One thing about Old Louisville is their historic houses, like we were just talking about, their mansions, and the city decided to preserve some of the history and make the neighborhood a preservation district. So basically, if you bought a house, you couldn't tear it down. You couldn't do any any renovations that would change the character of the home. So like anything that you wanted to do needed to be okay by this like the city and they had like this historic preservation committee that you needed to get changes okayed by. I think that's amazing because like our town has ripped down all right. but like two historic buildings. Yes. If for like banks and condos. Right. It's so sad. And all the houses that you can buy here are just like so basic and boring inside. And it's like they don't make houses like they used to anymore. Freaking trash houses. Trash houses. <laughs> Garbage homes. Garbage homes. All of them. <laughs> Quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> People came from all around the world to buy up these houses, architects and historians mostly, but they really just came to buy the old cheap homes and to fix them up into what they were back in their glory days, which obviously turned things up for the better for the neighborhood. However, longtime residents regarded old Louisville as a diverse and slightly run-down community where students mingled with ambitious LGBTQ plus couples, intellectuals, and individuals seeking refuge from the monotonous suburban lifestyle. It definitely has like that hip vibe to it. It's like cool. Yeah. yeah it's so, it's so, I cannot stress how cute and cool and just pretty. Yeah. And it's got like a mix too. like diverse is the word for it. Like oh, there's, yeah. it's a bunch of, it's just, I don't know. I love it. I love it. I also love it. <laughs> but with all the progress the neighborhood has made, It wasn't without its setbacks. And although the heart of the neighborhood boasted splendor and luxury with all of these beautiful houses, one of these areas being Millionaire's Row that we talked about, which, like I said, is just a beautiful block of mansions adorned by majestic old growth trees and secluded St. James Court, whose houses exuded Victorian charm through its gas lamps. Residents still had to be vigilant, though, when venturing onto certain blocks after nightfall. When we are you going to talk about how we walked there? Yeah, I was going to say that's actually something we experienced as well. I mean, the tour was what about 15 minutes from our hotel? Oh, yeah, if that it was so close. Yes, we were like, we'll just walk, you know, like we're used to it. Well, it's 15 minutes. What's that? Uh, maybe not the best idea. (laughs) No, absolutely not. There were so many people, like adult men were coming up to us and they're like, you girls, you better be careful. Yeah, like you, you guys got to be careful. And we're like, what? Thank you. And then we started, we just started walking more and more and more. And then Uh like we started to see bars on windows and I'm like, all right, uh, just FYI, Mm -hmm. be aware of what's going on around us because I don't think we're walking in a very nice neighborhood right now. I mean, people did keep warning us the entire time. There were like four or five of them. We were like, we're from Chicago. It's like the murder capital of the world. We'll be fine. It's not. But And like, like, this is just Louisville. It's fine. We'll be fine. Which was stupid. And then actually, so we were the first day of the tours. Mm -hmm. And then the second day, like they made an announcement like, hey, don't walk there. Yeah. And we were like, oops. Yeah. But it's okay. We had a friend drive us home afterwards. Shout out. 
So we also kind of heard, I don't know, maybe a gunshot while on the tour. I'm going to say it was a firecracker. Could have been a firecracker. Could have been a car backfiring. Sounded like a gunshot. I don't know. Whatever it was, unsettling. The point of it is just that while all the houses are gorgeous and beautiful, the neighborhood isn't like I guess representative of the, of the houses there. Yeah, there's like, there are spots. I mean, all, there are definitely all neighborhoods have like weird spots. And- yeah, but I feel like Old Louisville is, has a little bit more. Like there are definitely some spots that are good, and then you like literally turn a corner, and it's like that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> So I guess you just have to be careful. But if you're living in a gorgeous home, why does it matter, you know? I don't care. I don't want to leave my house anyways. So the house where our story takes place on 1435 South 4th Street in Old Louisville actually has a rich history and some dark history even before the story I'm going to tell you in a bit. And all of these things would give the house a reputation. One that eventually would coin the house as Louisville's own murder house. The house on 1435 South 4th Street was built in 1897 and first started as the family home of the Robinsons. The house was occupied by the Robinsons for over 20 years until Mrs. Robinson died from natural causes. In 1927, it was converted into the Bush Bandine Sanatorium, where they treated patients for long-term care with illnesses like cancer and tuberculosis. So I feel like the word sanatorium has such like spooky, Mm -hmm. ghosty connotations. Like mental asylum. Yeah, but it it was just like a hospital. Like a sanatorium is literally just a hospital. Yeah. And people always equate them with being like these terrible places where people were like abused Mm -hmm. and mentally ill and like they're not. They're just hospitals. So I actually looked it up because I was like I that had that thing in my head like confusing because uh-huh. like I thought when you hear sanatorium you're like oh that's got to be like a like a mental asylum mm-hmm. and you think like Geraldo at large like where oh, people yeah. are like chained to fucking floors and shit a sanatorium is essentially just like a hospital where people go for long term care so yes. it's like it's like hospice it's kind of like a, a yeah a hospice hospital like people who are in sanatoriums are probably like they're dying. So I think that's why it kind of gets that bad rep because it's like mm. everyone who goes there, like you're not going there and coming out and being okay. Like you're going there and you're probably dying there. Right. And it's a word that like we don't really use anymore. Like we say hospital or care center or rehabilitation center. Mm-hmm. We say that now. We don't say sanatorium. Mm-hmm. So everything that's called sanatorium now is closed down and yeah. is like a fucking ghost hunting mecca always. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. Sanat- like. I always used to think that too, like sanatorium, so spooky, scary. It's just a hospital, man. Yeah, it's just, just where a bunch of people live. Just a lot of death. That's yeah. that's what makes it scary and spooky. Um, and I guess it was fine and normal this sanatorium and this giant house until patients started being neglected, and Doctor Stanley Bandine began performing experiments on the patients. Okay, so most sanatoriums are fine. So most, well, so, <laughs> I mean, not all sanitariums. Well, okay, so cancer and tuberculosis didn't have a cure at the time. I mean, obviously cancer still doesn't have a cure. It's, there's things you can do. That's what the government tells us. That's what the government tells us. So at the time, he was trying to find a cure. So in his, I guess, adventures in doing that, He subjected his patients to a lot of experimental trials to try to find a treatment. Oh, so this is one of those episodes. This is one of those, there's too many ghosts in your blood. 
Yeah, kind of. Eat this uranium tab. You'll be fine. Yeah. So instead of being a place for patients to receive treatment and pass on quietly, which is essentially, like I said, what a sanatorium was, they were subjected to torture and experiments, which I don't know if it was like they agreed to it because they're like, hey, I'm going to die anyways. If you can find a cure, do it. Because I feel like I, that's I how would. I would be. Yeah. I don't know if he did it against their will. I couldn't find anything about that. I'm sure it was kind of a little bit of both. Yeah. Depending on the person. Not sure. So after patients started dying at noticeable rates, the place was shut down and Dr. Bandine had his medical license revoked. Can you imagine that conversation? Ooh. Hey, Stanley, just wondering. Um, 24 people came in this month. How many How many are alive? Uh, Three. Three out of, out of 24. Yeah. Okay, you know, better than last month. That was better than last month. Okay, you know, we'll allow it. This track record's not great. We'll allow it. <laughs> so with the extreme amount of people dying from their illnesses and possibly the treatments that Dr. Bandine was performing on them, the basement of the house was transformed into a morgue. I guess just adding to the creepiness of the house. <laughs> yeah, I heard one of his experiments was to shoot the cancer out of your body. So with a gun, yeah, he would just shoot at you and be like, "There's cancer, there's cancer," and that's not research backed, anyone. No, she I just made that up. Completely <laughs> joking. <laughs> so it does feel like an old timey treatment, though. Somehow, honestly, yeah. he probably tried it. You know what? Like, Someone at some point did. tried it. He also sold uh, galioxalide to his parent to his patients and marketed it as being a cure for cancer and tuberculosis, which. Obviously, it wasn't. Um, what it, is it? It was just nothing more than snake oil. It's I I don't I couldn't really find like what it did. It was just like a thing. So just like some made up shit. Like well, like you said, like snake oil. So he probably yeah. just like put some dust. It didn't do anything for them. It didn't hurt, harm them, and it obviously didn't cure cancer. Okay. So, but he was selling it to people and like telling them that it would. So he was getting people's hopes up, and they're like, mm, they're still dying. So it's internal anthracide. Yeah, see, I don't know what the fuck that means. <laughs> I don't know. So it's safe to say Dr. Bandine was just an overall bad guy. Not great. And as years passed and rumors spread, he received the title of the Mad Doctor. I also read that once he got his license revoked, he disputed it with the state. And then they later discovered that he had never been a licensed doctor to begin with. Oh! <gasps> But I only read that on a blog, one blog account. Like it was like a blog post about this. Okay. And I couldn't back it up with any of like my research or articles that I found. So take that with a grain of salt. Could be true. Could be not. I didn't find anything on it. It was just this one person's research that I found. I mean, I'm going to say it's probable. It's, it's definitely probable. It's not unlikely. I mean, he was like grifting people. Like telling them that he had a cure for cancer anyway. So I guess it's not not completely out of left field. He's know? like, buy this snake oil, get a doctor's license for free. And he like print them himself. Right. In 1962, the house was bought by a woman named Pauline Boren for $32,000, which would be equivalent to $322,000 in today's money, which is Kind of like what we were seeing was pretty in line with what the houses were going for today. Yeah. Like in the area. So still so inexpensive. Yes. Yeah, still very inexpensive. Well, for today's money. Yeah. And for what we're used to. You can get a huge, beautiful mansion in that area for extremely cheap. I mean, 
cheap in our standards because everything here costs like half a million dollars for two bedrooms and one bath. That's so, why none of us own houses. Yeah, that's why we're forever renters. Anyways, Pauline turned the mansion into 11 individual apartments, and after a few years after purchasing the home, tragedy struck the house once again when Pauline was murdered in the home by one of her drug addict tenants, when he robbed her of the little money that she had on hand and killed her for it. Worth worth it. Worth that $17. Right? Yeah. And after that, the house was purchased by a man named Jeffrey Munt. In 2008, right after Election Day from Mrs. Boren's daughter. And Jeffrey didn't move into the house until May of 2009. In September of 2009, Jeffrey met a man named Joey Bannis. And the two hit it off. And in November 2009, Joey moved into the house with his boyfriend, Jeffrey. The two men had plans to turn the gigantic home into a bed and breakfast. That is so idyllic. So we have Joey and Jeffrey. Mm-hmm. Um, they're boyfriends. They're happy. They're living in this house. They want to turn it into a bed and breakfast. Yeah. So I'm just going to throw this out here, too. So we have like three major people in the story, mm-hmm. all with J names. So if you Perfect. ever get confused, just ask me to like clarify who's who. Okay. Because I might keep repeating it out loud for me. <laughs> Definitely the listeners and not me, for sure. Jeffrey owns the house. Joey's his boyfriend and he moved in. Yes. Okay. So before this house was labeled the murder house, it was already surrounded by unsettling tales. The house kind of had like a reputation for being cursed. Oh, yeah. I mean, Before the murder happened. Old ladies are getting murdered. There's a morgue in the basement. Some dudes like putting live snakes up people's butts to cure cancer or something. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Allegedly. I mean, well, Yeah. (laughs) On top of the torture of previous patients by a sadistic doctor and the murder of Pauline Boren, it was rumored that during the Roaring Twenties, it was said that the house hosted illicit gatherings with a blind tiger that attracted large crowds. Wait, like an actual tiger? Yeah, a blind tiger. They were just like throwing like mad parties in this house. That's crazy, crazy, like Babylon style parties. Have you seen the movie Babylon? Yeah. Well, those kind of parties. That's crazy. You know what I just recently learned about, well, this, I guess not about tigers, but about the state of America in the 1970s? Mm-hmm. They used to sell baby tigers at Kmart. What? Yeah. In Wait, I'm sorry, what year? In like 1970 or something. I thought you said 90s at first, and I was like, what? No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, I guess the 70s wasn't that much before that, but yeah. like literally like this Kmart like Jesus. used to sell exotic animals like people just Ugh. did not care about anything no back then well i guess r.i.p to camp kmart rip rip to a real one in between owners while the house sat vacant rumors persisted of a satanic cult conducting rituals in the basement of the mansion and obviously take that with a grain of satanic panic salt also because People just like to throw that in anytime there's like a haunty place. People literally love to do it. Like, there was a satanic cult. Right. There's like those glow stars on the ceiling and they're like, <gasps> pentagrams. <laughs> totally. In the 70s. Rumors, Good harmony. I know, right? <laughs> in the 70s, rumors circulated that a secret society convened on the premises And other members of the community talk of how wild sex parties were also thrown in the basement. That an S&M club frequently held their gatherings in the basement. 
There was also another rumor that an exorcism was held in the basement. I couldn't find anything about that. These are all just rumors. Oh, that's what they told us on the tour, though, the S&M Club. And the, yeah. yeah. Well, the S&M Club in the book mm-hmm. is confirmed by an actual person. Like, oh, really? he talks to a person in town, and they're like, wow. yeah, I used to go down there, and they used to ho- hoist me up on a swing and, like, Damn. all this crazy shit. You know the first rule of S&M Club? You don't talk about S&M Club. <laughs> Do you know what the second rule is? Get up on that swing. <laughs> But yeah, the the exorcism part, I can't find anything online. So I don't know. Who knows? Could just be another rumor to add to the mystery of the murder house. I don't know. Probably like more satanic panic stuff, honestly. Yeah. So before our story even takes place in this house, the house already has a reputation. A lot of people describe the house as just being overall creepy, too. Like they can't tell you why, but it just gives them vibes. So this is all before the story that we're going to get into right now. Vibes are off. Starting off on a bad foot. (laughs) So our story starts with a 911 call. A call about a domestic dispute, but a call that would lead to the unraveling of one of the biggest and most scandalous murder cases in Louisville history. So I want to play that call for you guys just to get the mood started a little bit. And I tried finding this 911 call Everywhere. It was extremely hard to find. This actually comes from the YouTube channel called That Chapter. And I'm just going to play like a little part of it. I don't know where this guy got it. I couldn't find it. This is the only thing I could find. So shout out to That Chapter YouTube channel for providing this. So I'll play it for you guys. So, I don't know if you guys could hear that, but it's basically one guy talking about he a boy, his boyfriend trying mm-hmm. to murder him. I hate when they put He's music crazy. behind it. I know. I couldn't find anything without music. I know. I you swear. looked everywhere. So, he calls and he's like, my boyfriend's trying to murder me. Help. He's like, he's crazy. So the police come for a domestic disturbance. Okay. That's what they're called for. So on a rainy night, June 17th, 2010, police responded to an incident at 1435 South 4th Street involving two men named Jeffrey Munt and Joey Bannis. The two men were partners who lived together at their rundown Victorian home in Old Louisville, Kentucky. It began when Munt made a distressing 911 call claiming that Bannis was attempting to attack him with a hammer. According to Jeffrey Munt, this occurred after he tried to break up with Joey Bannis. Oh, no. In the 911 call I just played for you, you can hear Jeffrey saying, my boyfriend is attacking me. He's trying to get into the room where I'm hiding. Please, he's breaking down the door. In response to the call, the police arrived at the scene around 9 p.m., and they spoke to Joey, who at the time was now outside of the residence sitting in a police squad car. So while speaking with police about the domestic disturbance, Joey revealed a shocking piece of information to the officers. He stated that Jeffrey Munt, his boyfriend, had killed someone named Jamie Carroll in November 2009, just six months earlier. Okay, bombshell. Yeah, Dropping that piece of knowledge. That's something you can't take back. Jeffrey Munt, known as Jeff, 
was born in Louisville and graduated from Atherton High School. Jeffrey pursued higher education, earning a BA in computer science from Indiana University, and he worked as a technology consultant. He would later obtain a master's degree from Northwestern University in Chicago, where he also worked. In May 2009, Jeffrey returned to Louisville and joined the University of Louisville's IT department. His coworkers described him to be friendly and diligent in his job. However, Jeffrey led a double life. Yeah, he ran a sex club in his giant Victorian mansion basement. He didn't run. It wasn't his club. This oh. was before he moved in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sorry. But he wasn't not into that. Okay. So <laughs> all right, all right. let me continue. He harbored a secret and a dark side characterized by an alleged intense interest in violent sexual activities. And he was addicted to crystal meth. Oh, okay. That'll get you. Yeah. Jeffrey was also described by people around town as kind of corny. He would greet everyone by saying, Chop of the morning to ya. So he was kind of just like a big dork. Okay. He was tall and slender. And like I said, the pictures, he just kind of looks goofy. Like, not threatening. You would never suspect this guy to be, like, able to murder anyone or, I don't know, addicted to crystal meth or into, like, really weird sex things. This guy's eating meth for breakfast. (laughs) Bowls of meth. Top of the morning to you. Jeffrey Munt met Joey Bannis on the dating app Adam for Adam in late 2009. And from there, the couple moved in together to the house on South 4th Street. Most people would say the pair were an unlikely couple. They came from different backgrounds and had contrasting histories. Jeffrey Munt had a clean record. While Joey Bannis had had several felony convictions, he'd spent time in prison, and he was a known meth addict. Do we know um, by chance if Jeff was into meth before he met Joey? Or we don't know that? We don't know that. Okay, I wonder. I'm not sure. That's actually a good, yeah, that's a good point. I'm not sure. Yeah. You'd have to ask, I guess, ex-boyfriends there's, or yeah. people who knew him, you know? There's, yeah, there's a way for us to know. So I'm just curious because, you know, kind of well, right. lines up. And you know, he might lie too, you know? He could, well, you'll find later on that they kind of blame each other anyway. Okay. So. All right. <laughs> At the time of the murders, Jeffrey was 41 and Joey was 38 years old. When the pair met, Joey had recently been released from prison. Joey had a bad boy reputation, but he was from an affluent family. Joey Bannis's father was a well-known plastic surgeon in Louisville. He was wealthy, and he actually held a lot of influence, and he was known to get Joey out of trouble here and there. And Joey knew that about his dad. He always knew he would be around to bail him out if he needed it. Yeah, like, you know, if he gets, like, arrested or he's, like, in front of a judge for, like, some kind of terrible call, like— charge and his dad's like hey your wife uh need a little little implant over there a little little upgrade to the little titties to the titties uh see those bags under your eyes officer um you want to help a little botox you want you need a little uh little zhuzh little you want to come out and we'll uh fix you up there yeah so just like giving everyone yeah joey was kind of like a little spoiled like rich boy he knew he could like do bad things and probably get out of it that was like his whole thing. And then his dad could just change his entire face if he needed to skip town. <laughs> I mean, he could. He never did, but he could. <laughs> it was known that Joey had a drug problem, as he had gone to prison several times because of it. 
Joey worked at a nightclub in Louisville as a bartender, and he was known to sport temporary tattoos and body paint. Okay. Yeah. Slay. At some point before the murder, he had fashioned his hair into a blue mohawk, too. Double slay. Jamie Carroll met Joey Bannis on the dating app Adam for Adam, and the two men hit it off, mostly because they were both addicted to meth and because Jamie Carroll was a dealer. Oh, I wonder if they put that in their profiles, you know, like must like long walks on the beach, meth, uh, movies and dogs. <laughs> Depending on who you talked to, Jamie was either a lovely person or a son of a bitch who cheated people out of money. There were two very conflicting testimonies of his character described in the book. So I guess, I mean, just like anybody. Yeah. You know. Jamie was a hairdresser and at one point owned a Paintsville, Kentucky hair salon called Illusions. Illusions. And from what I read about Jamie is that he used to be really nice and normal. He, his ex-boyfriend, there was like a whole article about like his ex-boyfriend speaking about like who he was as a person. And he described him as never even having a traffic ticket. Once they broke up, he said Jamie turned to drugs and it seems like after that, his life just kind of took a turn for the worse. Jamie had a lot of friends and family who loved and supported him, which was something that deteriorated with his continued drug use. That's sad. Yeah. Jamie was also a part of the drag scene, and his alter ego was named Ronica Reed, and he loved dresses her from time to time. That's an amazing name, Ronica Reed. Ronica Reed, fun story about that, is yeah. a real fucking person. A what? Yep. She actually, so in the book, she calls the author and like talks about him, about how he was a good guy. They went to high school together. Ro what? And she's like, my name's Ronica Reed. And the author of the book is like, wait, wait a second. And she's like, I know, I know. He used my name as his drag name. It's fine. So, yeah, Whoa. Veronica Reed is a real person. He just, like, took her name because he liked it. That's an I mean, it is an amazing name. Right? Yeah. So Jamie was living in Lexington but moved to Louisville where he met Joey and Jeffrey. And he moved to um, Louisville from Lexington because he was running from the law. Okay. He's, like, just, like, always in trouble with the law. I mean, he's into drugs, you know. So at this time, Jeffrey is still at the home speaking to the officers. So we're back to the murder. Okay. So Jeffrey's still at home speaking to officers. He has no idea Joey just spilled the beans. So the officers don't really know what to make of the situation. They thought they were just coming to defuse a domestic disturbance, and now they have a possible murder on their hands. So they take Joey down to the station for further questioning. In addition to Joey's admission about Jeffrey killing Jamie Carroll, further details emerged regarding the circumstances surrounding the incident. Joey Bannis confessed that Jamie Carroll was involved in the drug trade and that he and Jeffrey had invited him to their house back in November of 2009. The purpose of Jamie Carroll's visit was because they wanted to buy drugs off of him. As one does from a person who sells drugs. As one does. According to Joey, Jeffrey had recently lost his job and was struggling to pay the bills. In order to try to maintain his lavish lifestyle... Jeffrey found himself in need of money. And Joey says that it was Jeffrey's plan to kill Jamie and rob him of all of his money and steal any drugs he had on him. 
Well, yeah, he's not going to be like, it was my plan, officer. <laughs> right. Especially because he's the one who kind of like told the, about, about the murder in the first place. So it's yeah. like, obviously, he's going to blame the other guy. I wonder if he regretted it instantly. Oh, just wait. Okay. <laughs> just wait. Another motive Joey provided for the police was that Jeffrey was jealous of Jamie. According to reports, Joey had met Jamie through the online dating site Adam for Adam. The two had formed a relationship shortly after Joey's release from prison in September of 2009. So kind of around the time where he meets Jeffrey. Oh, okay. So, and according to reports, the two men had met on this gay dating site mm-hmm. and they had established a sexual relationship. And Jamie was also Joey's dealer. He supplied him with methamphetamine. So when Joey was brought to the police station for more questioning, he told the cops that the night of the murder, the three men were hanging out and doing a lot of drugs. At one point, Jamie runs out and decides to leave to go get more drugs to keep the party going. Jamie Carroll actually had a court date the next day for a drug-related charge. So he was going to he he knew he was going to jail. Okay. He was basically like using this as like a last hurrah. He knew he was going to jail anyways, so he uh-huh. thought, why not live it up as much he could before? So when he goes to leave, Joey said Jeffrey hatched the plan to kill him. Okay. But they're not dating at this time, right? Like they're not like so Jeffrey like, and Joey. Joey are. and Jeffrey are dating, and then Jamie's there, but Jamie used to date. I think they just like messed around. They weren't really dating. Okay. okay. They just kind of had like a they sexual like relationship. Up. They would do drugs and have sex. Okay. That's And then Classic. he met. Then he met Jeffrey. Moved in with Jeffrey. They started their relationship. Situationship. Wow. Yeah. So Jamie gets back to the house, and the three of them start to get a little freaky. They continue their drug use, and then they get naked, and they all get into bed together. Yeah, baby. (laughs) So they're in bed. They're watching some porn. They're jerking each other off. And according to Joey, everything was fine until Jeffrey pulled out a knife and started attacking Jamie. That's not how you have sex. Nope. Joey. (laughs) (laughs) That's not. Wait, that's not right. No. Joey told the cops that he saw Jeffrey Munt stab Jamie over and over again and then he pulled out a gun and shot Jamie in the chest with a 38 revolver. In their fucking bed, dude? Mm-hmm. That's just rude. Yeah. After that, he told police that he and Jeffrey moved the body to the wine cellar in the basement, where they dug a hole six feet deep in the dirt floor and proceeded to bury the body. He said that Jeffrey threatened him and told him that if he didn't keep his mouth shut, he was going to kill him and his family. Jesus Christ. So with this shocking piece of information, police did not know whether or not to believe Joey's story. So they go back to the decaying mansion with a map of where the body should be drawn by Joey, and they searched the basement. And lo and behold, they found a disturbed spot on the dirt floor, exactly where Joey told them the body was buried. Oh, my God. Also, dirt floor. Mm-hmm. So they're having like sex parties and like satanic, supposed satanic rituals and like a morgue in this dirt floor. And like, basement. yeah, the dirtiest. That's yeah. so gross. Um, 
so with the author in the book, mm-hmm. he talks about how when the case first happened, obviously he lived around the area. Mm-hmm. So he goes to the house because like obviously after the crime scene, whatever, there's like it's like locked up. People yeah. were breaking in left and right of this house. Like once this got out there that there was this body in the basement, whatever. Oh, my God. They had taken it out, removed it by that yeah, time. But still, obviously. like it's like a crime scene. Yeah, there was like crime scene tape everywhere. So he goes to the basement. The author went to the basement just to mm-hmm. check it out. And he talks about how like he hears people like a, there's a couple in there fucking in the spot where the <gasps> body was found. Dude, people do that. They're li- they were like in I don't know. It's like a thing people are into. And he like in the book describes how he like hides in the shadows and like waits for them to leave because he's like this is awkward. Yeah, that's a little awkward. Yeah. So like basically everyone in town had like the same ideas. Like let's go check it out. Like let's break into this house. Some people I guess had a little bit uh, kinkier of an idea to fuck where the body was found. Yeah, like I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. No, no, no. But don't disturb an active crime scene. Right? Maybe wait till after. It's a little disrespectful. You know? Yeah. So when police dug into the dirt basement floor, they found the body of Jamie Carroll stuffed in a storage Rubbermaid container. Blood was found in the drain of the bathtub and a bullet hole was found in the wall. And I'm not quite sure on the blood part if that was actually Jamie's blood Six months ago. Six months ago. So I don't know if it was somebody else's blood or if it was Jamie's blood. All it said, the blood was found in a drain. So at this time, they bring Jeffrey to the station as well. And they sit him down for questioning. And I don't think he was aware that they had dug anything in the home yet. From my understanding, he didn't know that the body was found. So at this point, he doesn't even know that they know. Wow, and they do like the good cop, bad cop thing where he's sitting down and they come in with the body and slam it on the table. <laughs> the, the entire Rubbermaid container. Yeah. So upon questioning, Jeffrey Munt told police that he knew nothing of the murder. Actually, when police told him there was a body buried in his basement, Jeffrey Munt began to cry. Oh, no. Yeah. Spoiler alert, he's lying. He knew there was a body. <laughs> Spoiler, he's the one that shot him. So during further questioning, he eventually breaks down and he tells police that he knew about it. He told police, however, that Joey was the one who murdered Jamie by slitting his throat and then shooting him. Okay. So police were left with what they were calling a he said, he said situation. Well, literally, like, how do you ever know what the truth is? Exactly. One of them, like, they know what the truth is. They're the only ones, the two of them and Jamie Carroll, the only ones that will ever know what happened that night. So Jeffrey told police a similar story to Joey's that the three were in bed. They were jerking each other off when he claims he was suddenly thrown off the bed into the bedside table as Joey started attacking Jamie. He said Jamie was screaming and that at first he thought it was a role play, which he said they had been known to do. He said Joey had a knife slicing at Jamie's throat Then he shot Jamie and pointed the gun at Jeffrey and told him he could help him or be killed. Oh, wow. He said Joey gave him GHB to calm down and that together he and Joey dragged Jamie's body down to the basement to the old wine cellar. So basically their stories match up pretty accurately, except for the part about who actually killed Jamie with each man pointing a finger at the other. Right. Like they're telling near identical stories Mm -hmm. just about each other yeah just he did it no he did it what a fucking nightmare 
He said Joey forced him to start digging a hole, which apparently took him three whole days to make sure it was deep enough and big enough. He used the excuse that he was a scrawny man and it was difficult for him to do, which I don't know. If you have a body that you need buried like ASAP, three whole days to dig a hole seems kind of ridiculous to me. Yeah, and it's a dirt floor. It's not like he had to break up concrete or anything. Not that I'm saying digging a body-sized hole is easy. No. But if you have to bury a body. You do it that night. Maybe, I don't know, smoke some meth and dig a fucking (laughs) hole, you know? You've got enough of it. Whatever, dude. You just stole a fuck ton of it. (laughs) Yeah, so I don't know. Something, like that whole story, just something there is not adding up. Yeah. I don't know if it was like because maybe they were planning on doing something else with the body and then they just kind of were like, you know what, let's just bury him in the basement. It's fine. Yeah. Like I said, we'll never know. We'll never know. So during those three days, the two of them made a trip to Lowe's to get a Rubbermaid storage container. They bought duct tape and other items to assist in their cover-up. Oh, can I say something about rewards cards really quick? <laughs> yes. So a lo- <laughs> speaking of Lowe's, so a lo- you know, like you go into a store and like you punch in your phone number, like you scan your rewards card and you're like 10% off or like right. whatever the fuck, right? Yeah. Do you know how many fucking people have been caught like red-handed committing like after the fact like you committed this crime we know because you were at Lowe's buying duct tape like (laughs) rope in this container and we have you on footage and we also you put your fucking cell phone number in and then you bought all these like weapons of like murder in disguise. You literally bought the murder weapons on camera. Like literally you bought 10 gallons of bleach and a rope (laughs) on one day and you used like your fucking rewards card. Right. Exactly. So just if you guys just a PSA, if you guys are gonna commit a crime, maybe maybe ha- don't have put somebody the else go in. do that thing where like, you know, when you were younger and you couldn't <laughs> buy booze for yourself, so you sat outside a liquor store and then you like gave someone a twenty and were like, Buy me beer. Yeah. Do that with your murder weapons. Yeah, honestly, great advice. Actually, don't do that. I'm not trying to tell anyone we're how not to murder advising someone. Advising anyone do no. it. But if you were gonna do it, maybe also <laughs> don't do it in your hometown. Maybe be I don't smarter. Know. Yeah. Just maybe don't bury the body in your own house maybe don't kill some yeah but you know what yes just be careful out there whatever you're doing Uh, Jesus Jeffrey said that Joey cleaned the body with mineral spirits to get rid of any DNA which also seems pointless because you're literally burying him in your basement under where you sleep right like that's that's already incriminating enough but god they thought they were so smart We'll just wipe him down with mineral spirits and no one will know we're the ones that put the body in our own house. Right. We'll just be like, oh, my God, how did this body get here that we uh, obviously had known the person we had been seen with this person around town? Yeah. We don't know how he got here. How did the bullet from my gun that's registered to (laughs) me end up in this body? My fingerprints aren't on him. Exactly. It's just pointless. But there was another thing that was pointed out in the trial as well. So obviously the story of how Jamie died is pretty clear. Both men agree to that. They just don't agree with who did it. But the way Jamie was murdered would have meant that there would have been blood everywhere, which is even what Jeffrey said. He said that there was so much blood he could smell it. But when they tested the house for traces of blood, they didn't find anything. Really? They just found, like, some blood here and there. They said, like, it was a normal amount for what you would find with just someone normally living in a house. Like, oh, paper cut or, like, stub my yeah, cut yourself shaving. Cut my knee. Yeah, something. Yeah. Like, that's the only amount of blood they found. 
And they think that they didn't find any blood because Joey was like a huge clean freak, like OCD almost. So in the book, they mention a story from his old babysitter who said after every meal, he would wash his plate immediately and then scrub down the entire kitchen as a kid. As a child? As a child. Okay. I mean, good for that babysitter. The babysitter was like, it was just weird. Like he would just like finish his meal clean his plate right away and then clean the entire kitchen (laughs) don't complain about that yeah that's that's really crazy though because like no drops of blood like Mm -hmm. in between floorboards like behind baseboards yeah they fucking killed a man in In, a bed what did they do with that mattress threw it out i guess burned it i don't know it's in the basement (laughs) it's also buried (laughs) so i guess i mean that comes in handy for murder as well yeah I, i mean like i said it was almost the perfect murder If they disposed of the body differently and never told on each other, no one would have ever known, like, that this happened. They would have never been able to, like, tie it to them if it wasn't in in their own basement, obviously. Yeah, I feel like if they hadn't have said anything, like, no one would have found out for years. Mm -hmm. So after Joey cleaned the body, Jeffrey said he came up with the idea. So Jeffrey is admitting this. He said that he came up with the idea to use lime on the body to cover the smell. He said he got this idea after seeing something on TV, probably watching a true crime show or something like we all do, you know. Jeffrey told police that he was afraid of Joey, who told him that if he said anything, he would kill his family and his pets. As I mentioned before, it took them three days to dig the hole and get all of their supplies, So, by the time they were ready to put Jamie's body in the 50-gallon Rubbermaid container, rigor mortis had already set in. I do love the idea of them, like, watching, like, unsolved mysteries and, like, (laughs) like, taking notes on, like, how to do this. Because I feel like... They're watching forensic files. That's what they're watching. Forensic files, yeah, for sure. So, because Jamie's body was, I mean, stiff. Yeah. It's three days have passed. So in order to maneuver Jamie's body so it would fit into the Rubbermaid, they took a sledgehammer and sledgehammered Jamie's kneecaps. Of course. They then hogtied him and crammed his body in the bin. Why did they need to hogtie him? I guess to run away? fit him so his legs would stop moving. I don't know. There was also a cock ring still on him when they put his body in the bin. So they were like mid in getting into it, you know? Okay, cool. So they then poured lime all over his body and sealed the container with foam sealant and duct tape. They put this makeshift coffin in the hole, filled it with dirt, and went on about their lives as if they didn't have a body buried in their basement. (laughs) Just like marinating down there. That's crazy. You know what? Really smart, though, to like seal it up, I guess. mm -hmm. I mean, nothing they're doing is smart. But I feel like they watched like just enough true crime. They did. They know definitely did. Kind of what to do. One hundred percent. Yeah, I feel like that's about sixty percent of the people listening to this also mm-hmm. like would know what to do. Their one mistake though in burying the body was burying it in their house. Why would they? I don't know, dude. I, don't I mean, know. I guess because then you don't transport. Anyways, we're not gonna. I think they were on crystal meth. I think the theory or the, what they were planning. So you know how, and I think I, I think I read this. Um, I think it might have been the book. So you know they were planning on renovating. Yeah. So the when they bought the house, it was like completely run down. Yeah. They were living in it. Their 
their goal was to fix it up, turn it into a bed and breakfast. Right. So they, I think they were trying, what they were going to do and what they had plans for doing was they were going to pave over the basement floor. Honestly. Yeah, it makes sense. And that's why they were like, just shove it in the the third floor. We're going to pave over it anyways. No one will know. Yeah. And they were just okay with that, with having a body like forever entombed in this house. Well, to be fair, they did a lot of math. They did a lot of math. Yeah. There was a lot of (laughs) math involved. In April of 2010, so just a few months after they murdered Jamie, Jeffrey Munt and Joey Bannis were arrested in Chicago. The two men were staying at a Hyatt Regency downtown and were just there doing drugs and partying. Jeffrey, like I said, used to live and work in Chicago, so he was kind of familiar. Maybe had some friends up there, too. The pair were arrested when they tried to change a $100 counterfeit cash bill with a doorman who immediately recognized the bill as fake. So clearly it wasn't that great of a fake bill. Yeah, and also he handed it to him and he said, this is definitely real, and then winked a little. It was like pink because it was actually Monopoly money. (laughs) They were both colorblind, so they didn't know. (laughs) So police found $55,000 in fake bills, guns, fake IDs, meth pipes, handcuffs, and date rape drugs in their possession. Cool. When they searched their room. Party. I mean, who knows what they were actually planning. Bannis said that they were making bombs. Supposedly, they were talking of blowing something up or robbing a bank. Okay, so these two are the smartest men in the world. (laughs) They're just... Okay, so, I mean, this is what... Here's what I think is happening. (laughs) I think that they're just doing a fuck ton of math, right? Yeah. And they're just... Having ideas. We need money because Jeffrey still doesn't have a job. Yeah. It's like, we need to pay bills. I think they're just honestly like pumped up by all the meth and think that they can just like get away with anything oh for sure so (laughs) i I know like this financial advice isn't going to help them but maybe instead of spending fifty five thousand dollars on fake like things no uh, that was the they made it was fifty five thousand dollars in fake bills that's what they printed they printed fifty five thousand dollars in fake bills and they thought they were gonna launder it and they the first time they tried to use it, they were caught. Okay. okay. And it wasn't they didn't even try to use it. It wasn't even at a business. It was a doorman that they tried to get change from. God damn. Must, <laughs> that's how terrible it was. I wanna see it. I feel like it was like printed on construction paper. It was like half like sideways too. <laughs> Bannis books. <laughs> the pair bonded out of Cook County Jail with the help of Joey's dad, and they returned to Louisville. Uh, The messed up part about that, though, is that they had this whole fake money-making setup. Amazing. In the basement. Oh. The same basement that they had buried a body a few months ago. That that didn't bother them, apparently. It's just their crime zone. Yeah, they were (laughs) just, like, making fake bills with Jamie, poor Jamie's body, like, in the next room. Right. They're like, do you want to go down to, like, the crime corner? (laughs) Should we? Crime corner. According to court documents, detectives from Louisville Metro Police Department questioned Joey Bannis regarding the 38 caliber gun that was used in the murder. And he informed the, de- the detectives that the gun was currently in the custody of the Chicago police officers. It was revealed that Bannis had possession of the firearm at the time of his arrest in Chicago. So when they were arrested, Chicago police retained it as evidence. So they called Chicago PD and they, in fact, did have the gun and it was a match. 
So they're not lying there. That was the gun. Also, there was a knife that Jeffrey had. Mm -hmm. And they believe that that was also the knife used in the murder. Oh, wow. And But none of it was confirmed. Like, no one, like, I mean, you can't really, like, test a knife. He, he also know? wiped it down with mineral oil, so <laughs> right. he's good. We'll never know. We'll never know. So on June 22nd, 2010, Jeffrey Munt and Joey Bannis were indicted for complicity to murder, complicity to first-degree robbery, tampering with evidence, and murder. Each of them would be tried in separate trials with separate juries. So they each had a different jury, which is Interesting. a big part of this next piece. Oh, wow. So jury selection actually proved to be extremely difficult given the fact that they were gay men. And this was Kentucky. Oh. A lot of prospective people were automatically cut from selection, giving their prejudice over the fact that they were gay. I, yeah. A lot of people cited religion as a reason for why they believed Joey and Jeffrey's lifestyle was wrong. So they had to get creative with the questions that they were asking for the jury. So while many people were just outright like, we don't like gay people, which a lot of people said because, cool, yeah, people don't care. Like, yeah. people are rude. A lot of people use that as a reason to get out of it. A lot of other people didn't feel comfortable showing their homophobia and would just be like, oh, yeah, we're fine, just to, like, show that they're decent people. Okay. So, obviously, the defense, they wanted, they needed to weed these people out because right. they didn't want them to just give them an unfair trial just because they were gay. Right. So they had to ask questions like kind of like around the actual question, like, would you have a problem uh -huh. with this trial because they're two gay men? So they had to ask questions like, do you have any gay friends or like stuff to like kind of like lead to be like, are you OK with this? Yeah. Like so it was extremely hard for them to select people. I, I can imagine it would be. Um, also, people just like don't want to do jury duty anyways yeah people say shit to get out of it so yeah for sure i mean there's a lot of fuel to kind of dismiss mm -hmm. yourself on this one right which i don't understand why um i don't know if anyone has ever been selected for a jury i have it was the most fun thing i've ever done in my fucking life i want to do it so bad. it wasn't a murder case unfortunately it was just a civil case but it was so fun it was oh. so fun if your job pays for you to be on jury mm -hmm. duty i beg you to look at it differently it was really interesting i thought at least i've never been chosen i've been calling like calling oh my god i've been called like six times i've never been chosen i haven't been called since i was chosen and i'm bummed because i would love to do it again i want to do it <laughs> should we go in next time one of us gets called we'll be like tag team jurors hello miss lady <laughs> wear tuxedos so yeah so the questions that they asked were sort of like went around the direct question of, do you have a problem with the gay community? Because they needed to weed out people who were just too embarrassed to say they were homophobic. And maybe some weren't homophobic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Call me crazy. But if you're embarrassed by your hatred for a community of people, maybe you should really take a look at why you feel that way. And I don't know, maybe open your mind to the fact that you might be wrong. Yeah, dude. I got hate crime on the Internet the other day for being gay. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. It's so crazy. Yeah. If you're ashamed of something you believe in, maybe take a look at that. It's inside wild, yourself. Right? It's crazy. Yeah. Look, take a long, hard look in the mirror. Exactly. <laughs> so, anyways, three years passed before either trial began. 
Joey Bannis was tried first in February of 2013. The prosecutors portrayed him and Jeffrey Munt as a couple with a dark and distorted dynamic, alleging that they committed the murder of Jamie Carroll driven by financial motives. That doesn't sound wrong, though. No. No. I mean, that's actually kind of accurate. Yeah, that doesn't seem like that dark and distorted. They're like, they murdered this guy because they wanted money and he had it. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cut and dry. Joey Bannis accused Jeffrey of being the mastermind, and he also brought up a lot of other weird shit that his lawyers used in court to try to make Jeffrey look like a bad guy. Do you know what they are? So the defense tried to show that Jeffrey led a double life and that he wasn't a good guy, even though everyone thought him to be. A picture of Jeffrey in a black latex suit was shown. Uh, It was a picture that he actually had up on his dating profile, which was very similar to the black suit from American Horror Story. Yeah, a gimp suit, dude. So, yeah. They're so scary. I don't understand how people don't feel claustrophobic in that. I don't understand how people get those on, but I mean, how do people wear latex clothing? I don't know. Also, like, isn't it sweaty? So sweaty. I have a lot of questions about latex clothing. I don't have any answers for you. (laughs) Why? Sweaty? If anyone knows, please. Do you use, is there baby powder involved? I feel like there has to be. There has to be. Right? I'm just thinking of that one episode of Friends where Ross is wearing the leather pants and he can't get him back on. <laughs> if anyone understands how latex clothing works, please email us at quiteunusualpod.gmail.com. No <laughs> because I, how, do you, how do you put on latex pants? I don't know. I do. I, I can't put my jeans on sometimes. But yeah, so yeah. that was kind of weird because we had this murder house and then all of a sudden, because like a suit like that isn't something that, is brought up in like popular culture or like even just around. No, it's, it's a weird parallel for sure. Yeah. So it was kind of like, that's a little strange, but Jeffrey loved costumes. So he stated on trial, especially in the bedroom. Who doesn't love a costume? Right. I will give it to him. So I guess this was brought up to show that Jeffrey was into some kinky things, uh, I guess to show he had a dark side. I don't know. Joey said Jeffrey told him no one would believe him if he told the police because Jeffrey was the golden child on paper. No one knew about his weird fetishes and his drug use. Joey, after all, was the convicted felon. Honestly, yeah, kind of, right? Like if people have a preconceived notion of you being a felon. That's what Jeffrey, I guess, he held that over Joey. So Joey says. One of the weird things that Joey brought up about Jeffrey in court, which I guess tried to show he wasn't the guy, the good guy. One of those things was that he claimed that Jeffrey worked for the government, I guess doing something tech or something. And he said that Jeffrey had bragged about killing 35 other people for the government. For the Not sure how. Not sure the context. I don't know. Not even sure if it's true. So when Jeffrey was questioned about this, he said he was he said it was something he used for role play. He was absolutely he said it was absolutely not true. It was just a role play thing. And he hadn't killed 35 other people. It's just okay. something Joey made up. That is literally so confusing. So Jeffrey worked for the government and he claimed that he killed 35 people for the government, but he just like had a computer job, right? Yeah. He was just like a tech guy. But then later he's like, oh, actually, like I just said that because it was sexy. Like that's just like. No, it was role play. Like they were role playing and he was playing like a spy for the government who had killed 35 people. 
Oh. And Joey brought it up trying to make it seem like it was real. I see. Which okay. I don't we don't know if it is real or not. Nobody like I said, knows. he said he said. But it was things like that that kind of gave Joey less credibility, at least in my opinion. Like he was trying to create these like extravagant lies to try to make Jeffrey seem worse than him. But honestly, who knows? If he did kill 35 people for the government, that's not something that we will ever be able to know for sure. Yeah, but like also why even fucking lie about it? Like this guy already has a lot going against him. Maybe he thought it was true when he told him. I don't know. Maybe. He also claimed that they were working for the CIA. Joey claimed that him and Jeffrey were working for the CIA currently. He said that after they were caught with counterfeit money in Chicago, the CIA got involved and apparently, according to Joey, they struck some sort of deal and were able to get off, but no actual evidence ever came out of that either. So that's like another thing, though, that we'll never know if they were like secretly working with the CIA. Who knows? What if they were? They could. You know what? Jeffrey was big in tech. That's true. They could have struck some sort of thing like work with us, do this for us. I don't know. How interesting. Was never confirmed. Some people believe that whatever the fight was that caused the original domestic disturbance that night and eventually led people to dis- the discovery of Jamie's body had something to do with those counterfeiting charges. So they mm. think that that fight started because of whatever happened in Chicago. Yeah. Because it wasn't ve- it was shortly after they like got arrested. Jeffrey did testify in Joey's case. He had made a deal with prosecution that if he testified in Joey's trial, the death penalty would be left off of the table. Oh. Joey, however, did not take the deal and did not testify against Jeffrey. Whoa. Which seems weird, right? Super weird. Since you would think he would want to tell his side of the story. I wonder why. So he was supposed to but reneged on his deal with the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and then he refused. He said it was because he wanted them to renegotiate his deal, but many others believed that it was because he didn't want to look like a snitch, and also Joey Bannis was HIV positive, something that was not public, and that's something that they think that he was afraid would come out if he took the stand. Oh. And he didn't want that. How interesting. That's really... Which is super interesting because death penalty was left on the... Like, you would think if it's life or death, who cares? I mean, you're already... I'm just going to put this out there. You're already on trial for a murder. Mm -hmm. So if someone finds out that you also, like, have HIV and, like, you are a snitch, Mm -hmm. you're on trial for murder. It's really weird. No. I mean... Only Joey knows why he officially decided against it. Maybe he thought he was going to get off. That's And he didn't want to even risk the fact that that information would become public because he thought he had a solid case. Wow. That's what I think, at least. That's a risky move. It's very risky. Originally, Joey Bannis was set to take the stand at his own trial to tell his side of the story. But that never came to fruition because the prosecution had a very incriminating video of Joey that they were only allowed to play if he testified. And the defense thought it would damage their case if it were played for the jury. What was on the tape? I couldn't find what was on the (gasps) tape. But there's speculation that it was him talking about the murder 
and admitting guilt while also threatening suicide if Jeffrey left him. Why weren't they allowed to play it? I don't know. How does any of this work? I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I don't All know. the lawyers email us at quiteunusualpod at gmail.com. They would only be allowed to play it if he took the stand. Wow. Yeah. So he, he just didn't take the stand. Someone's got that fucking tape, dude. Yep. It's in evidence. <sighs> After a two-week trial, the jury deliberated for about nine hours on Thursday and returned Friday morning to announce the verdict. They found Joey Bannis guilty on charges of complicity to murder, robbery, tampering, possession of counterfeit money, possession of meth, and drug paraphernalia, and also murder. Joey was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison, and he will be eligible for parole in 2030 when he is 58 years old. Okay, so a couple things. One, that's super soon. Second, that's not that old to get out of jail. Like 20 years, yeah. Yeah, and also he didn't get... Like, even though he didn't testify, he didn't, he didn't get, get the, the murder yeah. charge. I think a big part of it was that the, like, there was no, like, uh, what what do they call it? Where it's like, without a doubt or something. It's like, oh, if you can reasonable prove, doubt. Yeah. They didn't have any reasonable doubt or there was reasonable doubt. Like, it, they prove didn't beyond know. a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Prove beyond a reasonable yeah. doubt. That's what it is. Because they didn't know. they There was no evidence that showed that he specifically did it or Jeffrey, Jeffrey specifically did it. Like, yeah. they both agreed to being there they didn't they couldn't 100% say it was either of them 100% because there's literally no proof there's no Mm -hmm. proof so he got convicted of it but I don't think death penalty I don't know I don't know how that works I don't know if they could have or I guess they could have if it was taken off for Jeffrey yeah but but like that's a lot like I would imagine the jurors were probably like you had you probably had to what if he's innocent yeah yeah. Prove beyond reasonable doubt, and they couldn't prove that. Yeah. See, we got there. We figured it yeah, out. We got yeah. <laughs> eventually found our way back. What? Like it's hard. In May of 2013, Jeffrey Munt went on trial, and once again, the defense blamed Joey for the murder. So they're just blaming each defense is just blaming the other guy here. They brought up Jeffrey's character and the fact that he was loved by most in the community, and the fact that he had no felonies, unlike Joey. They honed in on the fact that Jeffrey and Joey had only been dating for a month before the murder. That's insane. Yeah. So like they like met on Adam for Adam, were like kind of getting together, and then Joey just like moved in right away. Wow. And then they murdered Jamie. <laughs> wow. So yeah, I guess to your point, I don't know if Jeffrey was already doing drugs or if he had just started that month. Not sure. That's man, and I I've broken up. Like, I've broken up with people for less than that at a month. So, <laughs> right. So, they yeah. had only been dating for a month before the murder, That's which crazy. also helped Jeffrey's case because he was never in trouble with police until he met Joey. Damn. They painted Joey as the bad egg that led Jeffrey down this path of crime and murder. The defense also had a key piece that helped Jeffrey like tremendously. They had another video, and it was a confession video. Not a confession from Joey Bannis, but a confession from Jeffrey Munt. (gasps) But the video was filmed by Joey Bannis, and in it, Jeffrey is crying while Joey forces him to admit that he murdered (gasps) Jamie Carroll. Oh, my God. I guess Joey taped it as blackmail for if Jeffrey ever told police, or so they said. 
which obviously makes Joey Banis look hella guilty and like the obvious mastermind in the whole thing. Absolutely. But also, wasn't he the one that told the police in the first place? Yep. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Wild, right? He's so I wonder crazy. if he thought, I have this piece of evidence right? proving he did it. But so like, I mean, in the article that I read, it was like, clearly it was coerced. Yeah. Like, clearly he was on the other end. Like, Jeffrey was in tears. Like, mm-hmm. I'm so sorry. Like, I killed him. And Jeffrey yeah. was like, tell him you did it. Tell him you did it. So clearly it was like a coerced confession. That's dark. Which just made Joey look even worse. And it looked, it made Jeffrey look like the innocent one who was just being threatened, you know? Yeah. Hot take. They were probably on meth when they did it. <laughs> probably. I'm going to say that's a good guess to <laughs> At make. At least one of them was. <laughs> And the video must have convinced the jury because they acquitted Jeffrey Mundt of the (gasps) murder. He was convicted on facilitation to robbery and tampering with physical evidence and was sentenced to eight years in prison. That's wild. However, since he had already been serving time in jail awaiting trial, remember he was in, for three years he was in jail awaiting trial. He was immediately eligible for parole, and he was released and placed on supervision in August of 2014. No So shit. a year after his trial, he got out. Wow. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they didn't get him on, like, like, obviously, like, tampering with physical evidence, but, like, he fully, like, helped hide mm-hmm. a body and then, like, covered that up for nine months or something. Six months. Six months. Nobody said anything, and nobody was going to say anything. He didn't bring it up to the police. Joey did. I feel like that's wild that really they could, crazy that they didn't get him on more aggressive mm-hmm. sentencing. So Jeffrey Munt is just out, fully living a normal life, and general consensus of the people from the area who watched the trial, who were invested, like. David Domine, who wrote the book, and others who were just, like, really invested in the case. The general consensus is that Jeffrey got off easy. No shit, dude. Which I have to say I agree with. Only three years, and that was waiting. Technically four. He had three years waiting, and then, like, a year after his trial. And then he was out. That's pretty crazy. I mean, I personally think they're both guilty, and they both should have gotten the same sentence. Regardless of who actually did the killing, they both lived for six months with a body in their basement— as if everything were fine. Yeah, that's tough, man. Yeah. I feel like, I mean, one of, you know what? Both of them could have done it. Both of them could have killed him. They both helped. They we both will, didn't go to the police. Yeah, that's why I was just, I feel like it's insane that his sentence wasn't harsher. Yeah. That's everyone, everyone who knows about the case, everyone who watched the trial. Everyone feels that way. And Joey moved into Jeffrey's house. Yes. So this was Jeffrey's Jeffrey's house house. that the body was in. Even the jurors, so in the book, one of the jurors in Joey's case Mm -hmm. called David Domine and like Mm -hmm. just spoke about it and was like, I feel that Joey had an incompetent jury. Yeah. And she felt that more than half of the people on that jury mm-hmm. just didn't care or didn't like really understand what was going on. Wow. So I think what it actually also came down to was jury selection. That is And Joey just got like the shit end of it. That's that's those are wildly different mm-hmm. sentences because 
I mean, Joey, it's not like Joey didn't have like okay legal representation. I'm sure his dad, his dad paid for it. His dad was wealthy. He had the funds to get fantastic legal representation. Part of me wonders if if the trials had been flipped and Jeffrey was the first one, if his sentence would have been harsher Mm -hmm. because they pinned murder on Joey. And then by the time Jeffrey's trial came up, they might have just been like, well, he, you know, he did the murder. He got convicted. I think what also hurt him is not talking in Jeffrey's trial. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't know. I think it I think he thought he was going to be he wasn't going to be convicted and he it, it wouldn't matter. And I think that if he had testified in Jeffrey's trial, if Joey had testified in Jeffrey's trial, I think things might have been different also. That's it. That's shockingly different. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. But I mean, Jeffrey's been out and he hasn't committed any other crimes since. Yeah. So at is least he, there's that. Is he in Kentucky now? I do not know. No. There's, I don't know about his whereabouts. I just know that he's out. After Joey and Jeffrey lived in the home, it sat in disrepair until a couple bought it who wished to remain anonymous for, I guess, good reasons. I mean, I would too. So they purchased the home in December of 2011. And they started the very needed renovations in the spring of 2012. The project was very labor intensive, but the house had three levels and there was a space for an elevator shaft to be installed. 60% of the house had to be gutted, and during renovations, someone broke in and stole a stained glass window. Lame. Yeah, but other than that, there really wasn't much vandalism or, like, people coming in and out. Oh, people weren't fucking in the murder basement? (laughs) Honestly, you know what? Actually, they could have been, and, like, they just didn't take anything, so no one knew. It's like the woods. Like, leave leave with everything you take in. You know, like, be respectful of the space. (laughs) The basement area where, obviously, Jamie was buried was spiritually cleansed and the dirt floor was paved over. The home is now used for student housing. And when we were on our tour, our guide told us that in Kentucky, you don't have to disclose information about the property, like, let's say, if there were a murder there, to renters. So cool. I wonder who's sleeping in that murder, the bedroom, (laughs) basement, the bedroom. Right. So the students would constantly see tour guides stop and tour groups stop across from their apartments and just like obviously gesturing to their house. So they finally got out and asked why. And obviously the guides told them like, hey, you guys are living in a murder house. Google it. Just Google your address. Okay. What a way to find out. Right. But, I mean, our tour guide told us they were good sports about it, and they sometimes even come out on the porch wearing sheets for, like, shits and gigs, like they're ghosts and, like, dance around. They didn't for us, but apparently they're just, like, okay with it. Joey Bannis is still in jail, but you can apply to be his pen pal, which is something that I found. What? He still maintains his innocence in his, like, little pen pal profile. Uh It's like... I was convicted of a crime I did not, of a murder I did not commit, like whatever, blah, blah, blah. blah. So yeah, you can be Joey Bannis's pen pal. I don't Should know. Should we write to him? Maybe you can get the real story, but I guarantee you, you won't because no. he's going to be out for parole and he's probably not going to want to fuck with that. So yeah, I mean, we could write to him and see if he writes back. Another weird thing that happened actually during the trial, mm-hmm. another body was found in the home. Are you fucking in the... 
Are well, you serious? Not in the home exactly, but on the property. Oh, uh, so okay. a woman was found dead on the sidewalk that separated the murder house from the house next door, um, which just added to the rumor that the house is cursed. Okay. Did she? Well, it's believed that she was next door buying drugs or doing drugs and that she started to overdose and that whoever she was with, instead of calling the police and incriminating themselves, they dragged her body out of their house and onto the murder house's property and just left her for dead. That's super sad. Very sad. That's super sad. But since then there have been no murders, nothing crazy happening in the house. So I don't know, maybe the cleansing worked. Just going to knock on this wood real quick. Right. Wow, that's a wild ride. I love this story. Um, Pretty great, right? You went way more in depth than our tour guide did. <laughs> well, she had like... Yeah, 10 minutes. She had like 10 minutes. I yeah. have like an hour and a half. So yeah, for we'll sure. Give a break. That was good, dude. That was wild. What a wild ride. I'm yeah. still reeling from those sentences, mm-hmm. honestly. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, if anyone's ever been to the murder house, been to Louisville, or if you guys have a cool story about a murder house that you want us to cover or just tell us about, write to us at quiteunusualpod at gmail.com and we would love to hear about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually have a listener mail, if you don't mind. Oh, what if I said I did? We would skip it. That's I do mind. I mind. Are you in a mental space to receive a listener mail right now? I think I am, yeah. Okay, then I am going to continue. Okay, go for it. So this one's super sweet, super short, Okay, but super sweet. It's been in our inbox for a minute. So I just wanted to read it. It's not really lore, but I liked it. And I think you're going to like it. The email subject is, will there be an episode about the Sandoval? Why did I say it like that? Sandoval. Sandoval. The email subject is, will there be an episode about the Sandoval live show? (laughs) I cannot explain how thrilling it was to find out that the hosts of one of the greatest podcasts in history... In the history of time, we're attending the Sandoval and the Most Extras live event. Yes. Flipping him the balcony birds on IG was cathartic to witness. Oh, it was so cathartic to do, too. <laughs> also, the audio quality of your podcast is freaking incredible. Aww. Thank you for all the greatness, Chad. Oh, not our neighbor, Chad, right? No. Okay. Uh, we like this, Chad. Okay. Yeah, we're big fans of this, Chad. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. <laughs> We should have like live streamed that show, but I I don't I didn't know most of you guys like even watched Vanderpump Rules. It's yeah. like a guilty pleasure. Oh man, and the show was so it was so bizarre. Yeah, it was a weird night. It's kind of yeah, it was quite unusual. It was quite unusual. Well, thank you so much, Chad. Um, we will chat more about Vanderpump. If anyone's a Vanderpump fan, uh, if anyone hates Sandoval, if anyone I mean, obviously you, know, you have to hate him. Someone out there is like, he was framed. <laughs> um, if you guys love reality shows like we do, Nicole's more of a reality guy I love them. than I am. Um, I but I, I partake a little bit. Uh, reach out to us. We want to know. If you want us to read your listener mail, send it to quiteunusualpod at gmail.com. And we will read it. If you want to say hi, if you want to tell us a story, whatever it is, get you it out there. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We don't have a threads yet because we're not sure how to do that. With we like can't our do other like a accounts? business one yet, so yeah. we have our personal ones on there. It's yeah. the same as our personal Instagrams. If you guys want to follow, mm-hmm. we do post some QU news on there. We also have a Patreon if you would like to support us that way. Um, we also have two new patrons to welcome. Well, welcome to the coming, Justin W. And welcome. I am so sorry. I 
Googled how to pronounce your name and it came up with either C or Icy. So please, please reach out to us and let us know how it's actually pronounced because I'd like to actually give you that shout out. That would be, you don't want to be like me and just mispronounce everyone's names all the time. It's spelled Y-S-I. So shout out to you too, babe. Shout out. Let us know how to pronounce it and we'll give you another shout. Okay. Also, um, I want to shout out the P.O. Box real quick. We've been getting some kind of cute stuff in there. If you guys want to send us anything, that P.O. Box is 1212 in Des Plaines, Illinois, 60017. And as always, remember to celebrate the strange. And keep it unusual. Bye. And this is a part of the show where we give praise to the all-knowing leaders, supporters of the podcast, benevolent beings, and our favorite coven members. To Tim M. created a new form of time travel. He's calling it napping. I guess you just say lay still, preferably in a bed or reclined on a couch, and you close your eyes for an extended period of time. When you open them, you'll have no idea where you are what time it is, or possibly even what day it is. Delightful. That sounds like wonderful time travel. So relaxing. Mm. Evan K., who can be found deep in the woods on the eve of every eclipse, wearing the skull of a horse, the skin of a bear, and chanting incantations while dancing around a fire. Legends say if you hear a howl in the forest, it might just be Evan K. There he is. Is that you, Evan? KTT who never eats the blue M&Ms because one time a blue M&M cast a spell on her in a dream and she fears it may come true if she angers the blue ones again. Yes, better safe than sorry, mm. Portia. Yes. Adam Kay, who has recently become a self-made billionaire. How, you may ask? Well, simple. He's been selling exclusive Bigfoot hunting boot camps, Sort of like CrossFit, but you run around the forest wearing 80 pounds of hiking gear while clapping heavy pieces of wood together instead of flipping tires. Fantastic for the core. I would join that boot camp, I think. So would I. John S., possibly the most superstitious of the coven. John always carries a lucky rabbit's foot with him. Well, actually, he carries four around on his very alive pet rabbit. If one dead rabbit's foot is lucky, surely four alive feet must be much more lucky. Yes, and so cute. Adorable. Caitlin R., a powerful siren of the seas. Caitlin has a knack for summoning pizza delivery drivers to her house, and her sweet song convinces them to drop the pizzas off with her free of charge. What a powerful being you are, Caitlin. Mm, Truly. Alex C. has recently started working on her apocalypse bunker. The first thing she built was a life-size replica of a blockbuster, and next on her list is a soda fountain that dispenses only McDonald's Coke and Baja Blast. Alex has her priorities straight. Can we apocalypse with you, Alex? Mm, please, do you have room? Oh. Jeff S., who one day long, long ago... Jeff got a caricature portrait of himself rollerblading on the beach. Mysteriously so, the portrait began to age while Jeff remains as youthful as that day. Hmm, how curious. Hmm, wow, what an interesting story. I've never heard that before. Nor have I.
But Jeff told me it's true, so blame him if it's, it's been m- it stolen must, from someone it's, else. I, it's completely original, I believe that. It absolutely is. No one ever. Anyways. Lenore M., our newest all-knowing being, she has taken to pranking some of the more senior members of the council, which was all in good fun, until she decided to open the closet of 10,000 plagues. Lenore is directly responsible for the return of the locusts and low-rise genes. Thanks, Lenore. Honestly, they didn't look good on anyone. Locus I can do, but the low-rise denim, Lenore, mm. why? And Justin W., who recently started a business selling used coffins. It's 100% profit. He said he just finds them buried in the ground everywhere. What an entrepreneur. Oh, good luck with your business, Justin. You can do it. Thank you to all of our coven members on Patreon. Without you, we are nothing. We... <laughs> We're not worthy. We're not even worthy to be, like, put in a basement of someone's house or something and, like, buried under the floor. We're just, we're not worthy of any of it. We're not worthy of eating even the blue M&Ms that I've heard are cursed. We're not, we're not worthy of any of this. We're not. We're simply not. Ew.